0: I would be willing to take odds that almost all of you have in your home a nativity scene. Probably lots of them. And in the nativity scene, it almost always has angels. And they're often pictured as hovering quietly over the nativity or or maybe just behind the manger. There's no record that the angels were present at the birth of Christ, but they're pictured... They're here, they're a part of our culture. Angels have become part of the iconic imagery of Christmas time. The Hallmark Channel has made 5,938 Christmas movies with <laughs> angels, always a part of them. It's a requirement in the contract, apparently. Sometimes the angels pose as people to help a distraught soul, but the imagery of angels is a part of our Christmas celebration. The Bible has a lot to say about angels. They are created spirit beings with moral and intellectual ability. They can manifest themselves with physical features. They're called by such names as the host of heaven, which is a, a military connotation. They're called the sons of God, since they are those created by God. They're called the morning stars. They're called the watchers. They're called the ministering spirits. There seem to be two, maybe three classes of angels. There are the the cherubim who seem to have a guardianship role. There are the seraphim, the burning ones, who seem to have a praising and glorifying God role. And there are the living creatures of Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4 who seem to have somewhat of a combined role. Angels were most likely made on the first day of creation. Since Job 38, 6 and 7 says that they witnessed the rest of creation and they sang and shouted for joy. They are non-reproducing. They are immortal. They are personal beings who worship. They speak. They rejoice. They can be curious. They are spirit beings who can manifest themselves physically if the Lord wills it. They are mighty and powerful they're arranged in a hierarchy and in a command structure scripture identifies holy angels first timothy 521 and fallen angels the fallen angels have fallen have followed the former chief angel formerly known as the day star or the son of the dawn now known as the accuser in hebrew satan or satan angels rejoice they guard they visit key biblical characters on occasion. They protect Israel when commanded by God. They deliver messages. Angels strengthened Christ in the wilderness in Matthew 4 at His temptation. They strengthened Him in the Garden of Gethsemane at His sorrow and the anguish of His upcoming crucifixion. They observe Christians. They observe our relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, 1 Peter 1, 12 says this. And while we don't want to become overly enamored with angels, since they want God alone to receive all glory. They do play a vital role in God's redemptive plan. And so we pay as much attention to them as scripture does. And particularly as the angels are always, always aimed at the glory of God. They provide in many ways an encouragement and even an example for us, as we'll see later. Now, last week, we began our Christmas time mini series called Christmas Past and Future to see how elements of some of the classic Christmas passages in Luke and in Matthew not only tell us of the first coming of Christ, but they also point us ahead to the second coming of Christ by way of comparison and by way of contrast. Now, last time we looked at Jesus and his different arrivals. Today, we'd like to look at Jesus and his angelic messengers. Jesus and his angelic messengers. And we'll continue in the same passage we began last week. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2 if you're not there already. And we'll begin in verse 8. Just by way of review, while you're finding that text, Luke 2, 8-14, verses 1-7 through seven have described for us the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. The text never says he was born in a stable, just that he was laid in a manger, which could have been in a cave outside of Bethlehem sometimes used to keep animals, or perhaps in the animal care area of a home in Bethlehem, since animals were a part of every family's life. They were not in the kataluma, the good guest room, or the upper room of anyone's home, translated in kind of ambiguous fashion as the inn in most of our Bibles. Now we come to the angels and their announcement to the shepherds. Just to kind of introduce this a bit history characterizes shepherds as dishonest as rude as uncivilized they are the the low of the low of society that is not scripture's view of shepherds shepherds cast a a very positive light in the scriptures the the shepherd is the average joe They're the the humble and the lowly. And they are those who would respond to God's message. There's nothing about the shepherds that gained God's merit. But we should note that this birth announcement is not made to the Pharisees. It's not made to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jerusalem. It's not made to the high priest or his family. It's not made to the Roman government. Why is that? Well, as will be proven in the life of Christ, if the angels had announced the birth of the Savior to the religious leaders, they wouldn't have believed them. But God made a sovereign choice to reveal the birth of the Son of God to the most insignificant, to the average Joe. And so let's read this classic passage here. Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's kind of like the consummate Christmas passage, isn't it? This morning I'd like to show you four purposes of God's angels in relation to both the first and the second coming of Christ because they are similar. And these four purposes will really kind of help give us a a broad outline of the ministry of God's angels in, in their role of promoting the Savior of the world. The one that Joshua 5 calls the commander of the army of Yahweh, the commander of the angels. And so four purposes. The first purpose we'll call publicizing the coming of Messiah. Publicizing the coming of Messiah. These shepherds are somewhere outside Bethlehem within walking distance of the place that Jesus has just been born I hate to break this to all of you, but because of the fact that the shepherds are out in the field and the the, the flocks are out there, this is almost certainly not December. We won't take a, a long time to go into that, but um, the best evidence is that he was born around the same time that he would have been crucified around the time of Passover. But that's not really a, a big issue. This is the same night that the Jesus that Jesus was born, and. For all we know, this could be the actual moment that he was born. I don't see why there would be any delay whatsoever. Verse 9 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, at first, just this one angel appears to the shepherds, but this angel brought with him the reflected glory of God, such that the shepherds were terrified. They were filled with great fear. In fact, we could make up a new English word from the two Greek words used to describe their fear, but we could say that they had megaphobia. In the verse 10, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. And we should note, this is a heaven-initiated message. This is a revelation to these shepherds of good news. In Greek, essentially, a good message. In fact, it's related to the word for angel, a messenger. The Old English for good message or good story is the phrase God spell. And we get the word gospel from this the good news, the birth of the Savior, that God has become a man to dwell among us. And this good news of great joy, the angel says, is for all the people. This is almost certainly referring to the immediate context of Israel. The Messiah of Israel has arrived with the desire to save his people. Luke 168, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And of course, this opens the way to salvation for the Gentiles for all of us as Paul said in Romans 1:16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. Now we aren't told who this glorious angel is. But there's a reasonable likelihood that this is Gabriel. Gabriel's name means the valiant one of God. Why would we say there's a reasonable likelihood well, he's also present in the other examples of publicizing the coming of Messiah. In Luke 1, an angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that his elderly wife, Elizabeth, will have a son who will be John the Baptist. Luke 1.19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And what's the good news? That Zechariah's coming son will be the forerunner, the announcer, the herald to announce the coming of Jesus to Israel. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, once again, Gabriel brought a message. This time to a relative of Elizabeth's, a young teenage girl named Mary, a virgin who was betrothed to Joseph. Luke one thirty one and 32 records Gabriel's announcement to Mary, "...and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High." And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So we make a pretty good case that this angel here is Gabriel. In fact, we can make a stronger case because this is not not his first time to do this. In Daniel chapter 8, Gabriel appeared to Daniel to tell him of the end times events, including the coming of the prince of princes, or as Revelation calls him, the king of all the kings. And in Daniel 9, Gabriel appears to Daniel and tells him of the Anointed One, the Hebrew word that gives us Messiah, who will be cut off, crucified. Gabriel made those announcements of the coming of Christ 530 years before the ones we find in the Gospel of Luke. But there's another announcement of the coming of the Messiah which hasn't happened yet. A future publicizing of Christ's advent. Fast forward to the terrifying middle of the Great Tribulation. God has poured out the seal judgments on the earth. He has poured out six trumpet judgments on the earth. In Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And this seventh angel blows his trumpet, and the voices in heaven declare the triumph of Christ. We're not told whether these are our angels or the church, which is now in heaven, or both. But in any case, an angel got it started. Now, there's no direct evidence from Scripture, but it has long been Christian tradition that the angel blowing this trumpet must be Gabriel, since he's announcing what? The coming of Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. We even have the common phrase today, Gabriel's trumpet. And what is he announcing? He is announcing... With the shepherds, that the king has been born. He's announcing to all of heaven, the king is now taking his kingdom and he will reign forever and ever. With the shepherds, he's announcing the king is the Christ, the anointed when promised of old, to all of heaven. This is the Christ. He is the king. He is the anointed when promised of old. With the shepherds, this king is the kurios, the Lord, the indication in Greek that he is Yahweh, that he is God, fully God. To all of heaven, the king reigns over the kingdom of Yahweh. And at this time, when the angel, possibly Gabriel, blows his trumpet, makes his announcement, this time, instead of one man, Daniel, being in awe, instead of Zechariah, Mary, and a few shepherds out in the field, merely being stunned, this time... The church in heaven, portrayed as 24 elders, rejoices at this announcement. Revelation eleven sixteen says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Now we won't know until heaven, but I'd be willing to guess that Gabriel's going to love that moment. The first purpose the angels in relation to the coming of Messiah, publicizing the coming of Messiah. The second purpose we'll call praising the God of heaven. Praising the God of heaven. And when this angel appeared to the shepherds at night, verse 9 tells us that the glory of the Lord shone around them. Angels and shepherds are generally seen as the main character in this drama in the nighttime field. They're not the main character. They are not the focus of attention. The angel said, fear not. Why is that? Because when the angel appeared, the glory of the Lord shone around them. If you've ever seen a, a portrayal of this, you kind of have a few angels in the in the sky, some of them with trumpets like these, and you have kind of a glow behind them that this is the glory of God. No, this is the shepherds placed into the middle of the sun. That's what they would be seeing surrounding them. The Greek word means it's 360. It's all around them. The glory of God Un. Able to be seen. Blinding. What is this? The glory of the Lord shining around them. This is the manifestation of God's perceptible presence. In Exodus, all Israel saw the glory of the Lord in the cloud. They saw the glory of the Lord in the pillar of fire. When Israel built the tabernacle, their portable worship center, it was the place God chose to reveal His presence. Exodus forty thirty four. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of God doesn't take up a corner. It doesn't take up part of the space. It takes up all the space. King David In Psalm 63, he's reminiscing about his times of worship and he writes in verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What's the normal human reaction to the sudden revealing of the glory of the Lord? Ezekiel 44 verse 4 says, I looked and behold the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord and I fell on my face the unbeliever who says, oh, I'll stand before God and I I will explain my life and I'll tell him what a good person I've been. No, he won't. He will fall on his face before the glory of God shortly before judgment. The Bible has many examples of people being afraid of angels. But the angel is not the focus of the initial fear of the shepherds. One moment they're watching their flocks in the darkness and the next moment the sun is around them. But now in verse 13 now a multitude of angels suddenly appears this multitude of angels we get our word plethora from this it's a heavenly host literally an army the heavenly warriors who serve God these are the heavenly armies arrayed in all their splendor praising God and as much as we want to to assign to them a very calm and very pastoral white robes. They're probably also wearing swords. They probably look more like warriors than the angels we might picture. They're the heavenly host. They're the armies. And they're giving God glory. Why? Because God is calling a people to himself through Christ. And this is for God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7 speaks of everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Now, just a side note here, we want to be as accurate as we can, despite our tradition that says the angels were singing here, and maybe they were, the text doesn't say that. They were saying glory to God in the highest. In Scripture, angels are only portrayed as even potentially singing twice, in two specific times, before the entrance of sin into the world, and right near the end of sin in the world. In Job 38.7, the angels sang together at creation, but this is a very general word that can just as easily mean to shout. It can mean to sing, but there's a much more common Hebrew word the Old Testament uses, which always means to sing, which is not used there. And then fast-forwarding to the end of the Bible, in Revelation 5, beginning in verse 9, they sang a new song, definitely the saints, and maybe the angels singing with them as well. Maybe the four living creatures, angels of some sort. But the bottom line is that there's no direct evidence that angels sing. It would make total sense if they did. And the best evidence we have is that they sing before the entrance of sin and after redemption is completed. I will say this despite our favorite Christmas carols while it's uncertain about the role of angels in singing, and again, it would make sense to us if they did, the role of the redeemed in singing is absolutely clear. The redeemed saints are singing saints all throughout Scripture and into eternity. So if I could put your mind at ease, you're you're thinking, do we have to rip hymns out of our hymnal now? What the Bible portrays is that maybe angels sing and the redeemed always sing. And that makes sense to us. But I bring up all that detail to make one point. The focus is not on whether the angels sing or not. We'll find out. The focus is that their praise has substance. It has content. It's theologically profound. Glory to God in the highest. This is a a doxology. It's from the Greek word for glory. Glory. And it's very unusual because there are no verbs. There's no action words. It just states a fact. Glory to God in the highest. It's simply and purely an exclamation that God has all the glory. There's no verb. There's no action. There's nothing that gives God glory. There's nothing that that gives Him as a gift glory. He just has glory. He is glorious. In the language here, it stretches us that the words of the angels to look upward, to look skyward, to look heavenward. Because God is in the highest. We think of Psalm 57, 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 95, 3. For the Lord is a great God and the great King above all gods. Psalm 97, verse 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And what these angels are doing here is they're transporting us to that which is eternal, to that which is fundamental, to that which is infinite, that which is ageless, to the everlasting fact that God is above. He is over. He is most high. Or to put it a different way, He is other than everything else. He is other. And in fact, there's another word for other which we're more familiar with. And that is that God is holy. He's separate. He's unique. Shortly before the return of Christ, once again we see angels praising the God of heaven. In Revelation 4, we see the four living creatures. And the four living creatures, this is verse 8, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is and is to come. God is holy, holy, holy. Meaning He's above. He's over. He is most high. He's other. He is the Lord. Meaning He's the chief and the ruler. He is God. He's the only true and living God. He is the almighty. This is a compound Greek word that means He has power in every way that it's possible to have power. And He's eternal. He was. He is. He is to come. In Revelation 7, John sees a vision of a vast, innumerable multitude of the redeemed from every single tribe and nation and people and language. And they're standing before the throne of God, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And in response, Revelation seven eleven says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they, the angels, fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I put it this way. If the praise of angels is a symphony, Luke 2 is the opening overture and you get to Revelation and it is the climactic end. This crescendo of praise is ramping up Because the return of Christ is imminent. The kingdom is coming. The first purpose of the angels, publicizing the coming of Messiah. The second purpose, praising the God of heaven. We could identify a third purpose, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Proclaiming the gospel of Christ. The angel here in Luke 2 is a messenger of the gospel. Verse 10, of the good news. News. Let's return to the glorious declaration of the person of Jesus in verse 11. He is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is a summary of the gospel message. Do you realize that? He's a Savior to save us from sin. Now, that's a broad term. A lot of people maybe could be characterized as a Savior. It was common in the Old Testament. The judges of Israel were seen as saviors from Israel's enemies. It's a very broad term. But then we narrow it down. Who is Christ? That means he's Messiah, the anointed one, must be a chosen human king sent by God. By the way, Christ is a title, but it's so closely identified with Jesus of Nazareth that it became part of his name, Jesus Christ. But then we narrow it down even more to Lord, kurios. This is indicative of deity, his right to rule. A savior must be God. Even Mary, his mother, knew this. Luke one forty seven. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see how the qualifications of the one who can save you from your sins narrows down to one person? He must be a Savior. That could be lots of people. He must be Christ. The Messiah has to be human. That's more specific. But he must be Lord, meaning that he is divine. And that narrows it down to one person in all of history, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 14. We could read this a thousand times and it wouldn't be enough. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now we know that an unusual feature to this doxology, there are no verbs, no action words here. It's just simply a statement of what has been achieved by God. Glory to God in the highest. But then the second part of the verse tells us what's been achieved. Peace between holy God and sinful man. It's very possible that it could be that some of these same angels shouting God's praise here were also the ones assigned to keep men from God. In Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, plural, angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But now there's great joy in announcing that the way to God has been opened. That on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Messiah is called in Isaiah 9, 6, the Prince of Peace. And we should be very clear about this. The ESV does a good job with this translation. This is not speaking of bringing world peace, nor is it speaking of bringing peace between people. The traditional translation of verse 14, and on earth peace, goodwill among men. That's not a helpful translation because this is not referring to the goodwill of man. This is referring to the goodwill of God. That there is peace between man and God. And so this peace, this favor, this is a synonym for salvation. Acts 10.36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.10 tells us of the making of peace with God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Reconciled is a word of peace. Why is this so important? Why is this announcement phenomenal? Mankind was born at war with God. You can tell your children this. Mankind is born at war with God. What is God doing? Psalm seven, verse twelve says, "If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. That every breath that the unbeliever takes in the state of unrepentance and rebellion, the bow of God is aiming an arrow, an eternal arrow of of perdition and damnation to hell." The bow is creaking, it's straining, it's eager to loose this arrow. And the sword is sharpened and it's ready to strike. But because of Christ, the sword is lowered. The bow comes down and God instead extends a hand of friendship and favor and grace. Who gets God's favor? Those with whom he is pleased. Not in the sense of merit of anybody doing anything to please God, but in the kingly sense of the king does as he pleases. The shepherds beheld the glory of God as reflected by the angels. And in Christ, God has offered to make peace with us so that we might behold his glory and not his wrath. The angels of God are proclaiming the gospel of Christ. They did so then, and they will do it again. Shortly before the return of Christ, Revelation 14, beginning in verse 6, tells us, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Listen, holy angels have always feared God. They have always worshipped God. They're fiercely loyal to the gospel of Christ. Interestingly, though, it's something that they cannot fully understand to the extent that we can. And Why is that? Because while they're loyal to God and loyal to the gospel of God, they have never directly experienced the gospel no fallen angel has ever been offered redemption in fact you remember how at the creation the the angels shouted for joy when they witnessed the creation of god well one of the outcomes of your salvation in christ is that the angels are awestruck they're they're amazed at how god can make a new creation out of you out of a sinful man out of a sinful woman In Ephesians 3, Paul calls this salvation in Christ a mystery that has now come to light, and there's an outcome, there's a result concerning the angels. Ephesians 3, 9, and 10 To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is the angels. They marvel at, they, if I can kind of put a human term on this, they, they kind of scratch their head at how is it that you, born in sin, steeped in your own iniquity, dead in your trespasses and sin, can be transformed into somebody who will worship God for all eternity. The angels have never experienced that. They simply marvel at it. In fact, I said earlier that the angels are curious the angels seemingly would give anything to understand what it means to be redeemed. The mystery of how God can transform God-haters into lovers of God, into eternal worshipers. First Peter 1, 10-12 speaks of the Old Testament prophets through whom the knowledge of Christ is given prior to His coming. The, the Old Testament texts, which were in the early church, they were the, the primary text being used to preach the good news of salvation until there was a completed New Testament. And of these things of salvation, these things of redemption, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12 that these are things into which angels long to look. That's a word that means to intensely desire something. An angel cannot be redeemed, but angels love the redemption of God because it glorifies His grace and His mercy and so they are agents Of proclamation. We should note something very important at this point. Which the angels illustrate for us. They set a wonderful example. The gospel is something to be proclaimed in words. The gospel is truth. And in and of itself. The proclamation of these words give glory to God. Why do we preach the gospel? We have a secondary purpose, and that is to hope that people come to faith in Christ. But the the primary purpose is that when we say the words, Jesus Christ came to earth to die on a cross to forgive the lost of their sin if they would but repent, and by his resurrection, they are given justification and new life, and he has ascended into heaven where even now he intercedes on behalf of all who would place their faith in him, and someday he will return and consummate this salvation God has been glorified. That's our number one reason. Why do we speak the gospel every week? Because it gives glory to God. And so the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel are connected at the hip, both in this announcement by the angels and in their future proclamations of the gospel. Remember, the mighty angel of Revelation 14, flying overhead, shouts out, Fear God and what? Give Him glory. The first purpose of the angel in relation to the coming of Christ, the angels publicizing the coming of the Messiah. The second purpose, praising the God of heaven. The third purpose, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We'll do one more purpose. Fourth, their purpose is pointing the people of God. Pointing the people of God, as in steering them, directing them, guiding them. Now the shepherds here in Luke 2, they've heard the announcement that their Savior, Christ the Lord, has been born somewhere in Bethlehem. What's the obvious implied question? Where? Where is he? How do we find him? Each time an angel announces something about a baby, a sign accompanies it. Luke one twenty, the angel Gabriel announced to Zechariah the coming of of the birth of John the Baptist, but Zechariah was skeptical, so the angel's sign to Zechariah was that he would be unable to speak until John was born, and that's what happened. Luke 1.36, the angel Gabriel is announcing to Mary that she'll be the mother of the Savior. The sign is that her, her elderly cousin, Elizabeth, is pregnant with John the Baptist in her old age. Verse 37, the angel explains that this sign shows that God can do anything, quote, for nothing will be impossible with God. And now... A third time, a sign is given at the announcement of a baby. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. A baby in a feeding trough, wrapped in bandages. Probably a a number of babies wrapped in swaddling cloths, but none of them in a feeding trough. Did you notice the priority of the angels? They were not just giving information that Jesus was born. They didn't just say, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Have a nice day. What was more important to them is they compelled the shepherds to go find him. They compelled the shepherds to go to Jesus. They were pointing the way to Christ. In fact, as we look through Scripture, it seems that the angels love to be involved with pointing people to Christ. They were involved with pointing to people to Christ in the early church. In Acts 8.26, an angel pointed the apostle Philip to to a place where Philip would come upon an Ethiopian, reading the book of Isaiah, and Philip would explain the gospel, see the Ethiopian saved, and baptize him immediately, pointed to Christ. In Acts 10, an angel brought together Peter and the Roman centurion Cornelius that Peter might preach the gospel to Cornelius and to his household, and they were saved. Now, on multiple occasions, angels assisted Peter and Paul that they might continue their gospel work, pointing people to Christ. In fact, the angels are involved with pointing people to Christ now, at this moment. The writer of Hebrews rightly places Christ as above all the angels, superior to them all. But he gives a footnote in Hebrews 1 about what the angels do. He calls the ministering spirits, and he says in Hebrews 1 Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? Listen to this. For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Literally in Greek, for the sake of those who are about to be saved. They love to point people to Christ. And in fact, when your days on this earth are done, the angels will be involved with pointing you to Christ. Never again to be separated from the Lord in Luke 16, Jesus tells the parable of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man was lost in the sin, but the poor man had genuine faith in God. The poor man died. In verse 22 says he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, to the place where the truly redeemed go. And so if you ever wonder how it is at the, at the moment of your death, that instant moment when you're with the Lord, how are you going to find your way? I mean, after all, none of us are experienced at death. And no one's ever come back to tell us what to do. But it does seem that the angels have the privilege of seeing your salvation in Christ consummated and completed and taking you instantly to the very presence of the Lord. They love to point people to Christ. What about the future? How will angels be involved in pointing God's people to Christ? In the young Thessalonian church, there was a lot of confusion about the end times, especially about what happens to dead people. What happens to, to our brothers and sisters who have died? And so Paul gives them comfort in First Thessalonians four thirteen and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who, do not, who, who have no hope, brother. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So there will be a resurrection of the dead saved in the future. What about those who are still alive? Paul continues For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet. Anyone taking odds for Gabriel? And for the first time in history, all the people of God are gathered to Christ all together in one place. But then during the great tribulation, God will continue to save the lost, even as the church age saints have already been called home to heaven. And these tribulation saints are being saved and dying for their faith. And they too are being gathered into heaven. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, I know I've read that already, but the text keeps going. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How the angels love to shepherd the people of God into the presence of God. They love that. These four purposes give us a way to just understand the glory of God better, but they also provide some compelling examples for you and for me because these angels are fiercely loyal to their God and they're fiercely loyal to the redemptive plan of God which they long to understand. But they are a good example and I'm going to reduce this to two thoughts as they provide an example for us the first thought is they publicized the coming of the messiah they proclaimed the gospel of christ they they pointed people to god these are different facets all of the same jewel this is one of the key messages of the church that christ is coming christ is coming that there'll be a day when the kings of the earth hide themselves and try to escape. Revelation 6 says this, that the wrath of the Lamb of God is on its way. And what a service that we do to the world when we tell them that the King is coming, that the Savior is coming. And what a disservice is done to the unbeliever when faith in Christ is presented as something as lowly as have a good life now. No, Christ is coming. And you must be on the right side of redemptive history through repentance of sin. And the only answer is the gospel. The only answer is to point people to the cross. And the angels are fiercely loyal to the gospel. And the second thought, they praised the God of heaven. They praised the God of heaven. How insidious it has been to see the worship of our Savior and our God slowly turned into a man-centered show to include anything we feel like, to lose the sense of reverence and awe. Can I ask you a very serious question? When was the last time you trembled before God? The angels are relentless in giving glory to God and praising Him because of His worth. And so I would urge all of us, let the truths of the preached word drive themselves into your soul so that you know and you glorify God better. Let the words that we sing together flow like cool water off a mountaintop to cleanse your soul, to cleanse your heart of the pollution of our world. And let the gathering of the saints in the church be something that you hold in esteem and in awe because though we cannot yet gather before the God of heaven, we gather in the presence of God. By the way, we're all here together and we enjoy the ecclesia, the gathering, but I have one last question for you. Who else attends the worship services of the Church of Jesus Christ? Deuteronomy two tells us there were angels at Mount Sinai when the people of God received the law. Psalm 68.17 describes angels in the sanctuary of God in the temple. The temple itself was decorated with images of angels representing what? Their presence. Hebrews 12.22 speaks to Christian to the Christian as if he's already in the future, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal, the word is ecclesia, gathering. First Corinthians eleven teaches on some aspects of the propriety and proper behavior in the corporate worship gatherings of the church, specifically concerning demonstrating. Submission to God's design for marriage, and in that time, a woman wearing something on her head was an outward sign of the inward attitude of submission to her husband. But interestingly, in the context of the worship gathering like we're in right now, the women are given another reason to wear this symbol of authority, which was customary then. 1 Corinthians eleven ten. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Why? Because they were there. And they are here. What does that do to your sense of awe? Your sense of propriety? Your sense of worship? That we who are the redeemed ought to worship as the redeemed when there are witnesses, heavenly witnesses, who long to know and to feel and to experience what we have. The angels have always loved to be involved with the redemptive plan of God and they will continue to do so. Will you be as loyal and have the fiery devotion to the Lord as an angel who has never experienced redemption? Will you be like the seraphim, the burning ones who proclaim the three times over holy, holy, holiness of God? And will you demonstrate for the watching angels the ministering spirits sent out for the sake of of those who will inherit salvation for the sake of the elect, will you demonstrate what the worship of a redeemed person looks like? Angels long to look into what redemption looks like. Show them. Show them. Demonstrate what a transformed worshiper does to the glory of God. And in fact, there is a sense in which we should outdo the angels. Because unlike them, you can say, And I can say, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace has been given to me because God has chosen in His grace to make me one of those with whom He is pleased. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe and in thanks and in gratitude that You have transformed us and to those with whom you were pleased. In all of the Bible, only one reason is given for this kindness and this grace. The only reason that we can find in all Scripture, in love, he predestined us for adoption. We are so thankful to you and we ask you, God, we We wouldn't elevate angels beyond where they ought to be. they are ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They are mighty servants of God. We would not elevate them beyond that. But might we be as loyal? might we be as devoted? might we have the fiery love for our god that they have because we have so much more to thank you for we have redemption we have eternal life you transformed us and god i would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who has heard this message right now and the spirit of god is moving in them and working in them to tell them that they do not know the god of the universe they do not know christ the savior And so I pray that even now, Lord, you would bring repentance upon them. That they would cry out to you in the quiet of their heart in sorrow for their sin and ask for your mercy. And the Lord Jesus himself has said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I pray that even this day, I would pray that even this moment you are transforming a heart or two or three or ten. To become those who will not only behold the angels who love Christ, but who will behold Christ. As we have done through your word this morning. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.